getting Anybody want to lick the It's good. Do you mind? You'd like to? Okay. Have we got something there? You shake his hand, yes. Oh, we're getting it through here. Yeah, okay. I'll just lick this. It looks like an ice cream cone. What would you like from me? I'd like a double portion of your spirit to be upon me. And he says, you've asked a hard thing. Verse 10, nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so. As they continued on, they talked, and a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. I'd just like to be, have that run between you and your friend. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha saw it. He cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them in two pieces. And he took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him. And I explained three years ago, I'm sure you remember, that the mantle doubled as a blanket. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus said, if you hire a guy and you take his mantle as a, as a, uh, like a, your consignment thing. You hold it during the day while he works for you. Don't keep it overnight. Give it back to him. Pay him his day's wages and give it back to him in the evening because it doubled as is not only his jacket but his his blanket. He could use it for covering. <clears throat> you remember uh, when Jesus was being betrayed in Mark? It talks about Mark uh, flees naked. The Bible says because they grabbed after him as he was running. They grabbed him and they caught him by his mantle. And as he ran, he ran out of his jacket, if you will, and uh, fled naked. But he probably wasn't naked in the sense of we tend to think. He had other clothes on, but they took his mantle. So Elisha takes the mantle that had fallen. And I said this when I threw the mantle over Rob three years ago. I took it back, right, because Elijah got his back too for the next three years. He went back and, um, and he said, where's the Lord God of Elijah? And he also struck the water. It divided the, the way uh, that it did when Elijah had come across. And Elijah crossed over on dry ground as well. And the sons of the prophets in verse 15 from Jericho said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And so um, I'm hoping that Rob didn't take off. There he is hiding. I need you to come here and quit doing whatever it is you're doing. Just hand it off. Rob is... You know, when I talked about it three years ago, we said Elijah and Elisha, we, we made it Elijah and Elisha, or Paul and Timothy, or Moses and Joshua. Uh, we you, you made those illusions and illustrations. Would you hold this for me so I can talk? And so I'm so glad to do this this morning. This is early for wearing this kind of a jacket. But I don't know if it fits him. And I don't really care if it fits him. probably won't fit him. But I want to... Yeah, he can't even find the holes. It's so small. So, it's all right. It's okay. It's a Nino Ceruti. You can adjust it. Uh, I wanted to end for me this morning with you present. For me, this is the end of a three-year journey. This is the Elijah Elisha moment for me. See, it was September 13th when I threw the mantle over him, which was just last Thursday. So in my calendar, I'm looking and saying, it's done. It's done. You get to be your own Elijah. You get to be your own Moses. You get to be your own Paul. You know, he's no longer the follower, right? He's no longer the, the servant to me. He's our servant now. 
Amen. And I just wanted to give him my mantle, which is wearing that thing during worship was. I was going, man, give me some air, you know. <laughs> That's a heavy jacket. And maybe there's some significance in that thought. It's a heaviness that comes with that, but there's also an anointing that comes with that. And the anointing is what he needs, is what he has. And it doesn't come with this jacket. I mean, if that was the case, I'd buy all the Nino Cerruti jackets I could find. And I'm not sure double-breasted is even in style. But a mantle is a mantle. And I want you to pray with me this morning for no other reason but let me complete this journey I've been on. Father, this morning, uh, I hand off this jacket symbolically to Rob in front of you. And I commit before you, Lord, to, to, to grant to him in my heart and in the leadership of this church to give him the leadership of this church entirely, completely, of this body. Lord, and I pray that you would put upon him your anointing for leading us together into the vision that you have for this place and for this community. God, I pray that you will begin to bring him into deep and uh, powerful revelation about what it is you've called him to do and who you've called him to be. And I ask that from this day forward, Lord, uh, that we would look to him as our senior pastor in such a way that there's no doubt that we align ourselves to the vision of this house as you give it to us. And that, Lord, you will cause us to work together as the body of Christ fluidly, functioning together under this anointing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. No. I don't want it back anymore. It's not my mantle. Amen? It's not mine. I mean, Elijah took off and didn't get his jacket back on the way out, right? So it's all yours. It's yours, bud. After this morning, it would need some dry cleaning. Hallelujah. Thank you for, for me, that's like putting the exclamation point at the end of the sentence. That's a three-year-long sentence. Amen. I want to continue this morning. I know we, we are talking about scheduling an encounter weekend. And how many of you have been to one of our encounter weekends in the past? We haven't had one for quite a while, but. I know any one of you could stand up and testify to what God did in your life, and I pray that you'll share that perhaps this week in your life group with others and encourage them because an encounter weekend is really a Friday night, a Saturday all day, and then we run it into Sunday morning when we do it here at the church in, in this building if we don't take it somewhere else <clears throat> this time. Um, and we just shut ourselves in with God for the weekend. And it's about encountering God. That's why it's called Encounter Weekend. It's not about having an encounter with one another or anything else. It's about coming into his presence and worship and prayer. And uh, a lot of great things happen in encounter because it's really important to discuss the way to the cross. It's, it's important for us to go to the cross. Some of these are stepping out right now to go to baptism. And, and water baptism is an incredibly significant second step to your, to after you accept Christ. It's a public declaration and uh, if they were still in here, those are, are, are the Baptist candidates in here still? Or they've already gone? You know, they're, they're identifying themselves with Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. They're agreeing with him that in themselves there's no good thing. Like Paul the Apostle said, in neither resides no good thing. 
they're agreeing, hopefully, and Rob will cover this with them, that, that with God, all of their righteousness is like filthy rags. They have nothing that they can offer God. And so what they want to do is say, I agree with you, God, and I need to take my life and put it at the cross. I need to be nailed there. I need to identify myself with the death of Jesus and know that I was in Christ then when he was crucified. My life was crucified with him. And then as I go through baptism, I'm saying that I identify with the cross and the death that happened there was my death, the old me. But he says, now when we come up out of the water, we're saying, now I'm going to walk in newness of life. I'm going to walk in the fullness of the spirit. I'm going to walk in the in having, uh, as my sin's been taken care of, I'm going to take care of my sinfulness and my bent towards evil. It's all going to be redeemed, and I'm going to live by grace. I'm going to live by faith in the Son of God. And, uh, and as I come up, that newness of life, I look for a fresh life to happen, even in that moment at, at water baptism. We've seen so many people uh, get baptized and, and see a transformation of their life because of it. And oftentimes they do this in front of their family and their friends who are unsaved people that don't know what's going on. They don't know the significance, but they see the dedication of that life and they identify the identification with Christ, and it makes an impact on them. Uh, so I'm uh, in my tail there. I'm really excited for them that, and want to congratulate them for what they're doing. And oftentimes in the encounter weekend, if we have those who are saved in the encounter but haven't been baptized, we'll, we'll have a baptism during the encounter weekend. Uh, in Luke chapter 11, I'm going to cover a bunch of things this morning. I hope I can get it all done and you can keep up and it'll somehow weave together and make some sense. All in just a few minutes. Um, we discuss how, how we go to the cross and then how we come out with this emergent Christ-likeness and this uh, Christ-life in us. I, I did a bunch of reading and listening over this week and things like The Life Model by James Wilder and Help When You're Hurting by Larry Crabb and Dan Allender, um, some of the Victory Over Darkness, The Bondage Breaker, Neil Anderson, and all of these people who help the body of Christ come to wholeness and healing agree that... You have to replace the former lies that were in your life with truth. That there are a lot of lies that we believed all through our life. And it could have been as simple but as damaging as a parent saying, you're a fatso or whatever. They spoke that lie into us and it stuck like a dart and affixed itself to us. And we have to replace those lies with truth. Uh, Neil Anderson's been, become famous for the God using him in what he calls truth encounters rather than power encounters. You know, he's not looking for the dynamic of, you know, a powerful spirit moment where you're casting out demons or finding deliverance of some kind, but rather coming into an engagement with the truth of God, with the word of God in such a way that the truth presses the lie out and gives victory for the future. They all agree that we need Romans 12 too. We need the renewing of our mind. We know that we don't just renew our mind with anything. We renew our mind with the Word of God. We know that 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, it says that there is a battle and we fight in it and that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not of the flesh, but they're mighty through God through the pulling down of strongholds, right? Those strongholds are generally strongholds of the mind. They're not strongholds of some spiritual uh, fortress that's been built against us. They're things that are inside our minds that we tend to think about. 
And well, I don't know what you think of when you look in the mirror, but I hope it's good thoughts. I hope you look in the mirror and you say, boy, there's a Jesus person if I ever saw one. Look at the glow on that face. Christ is so full in me, I just can't hardly hold it. Is that what you say? When you get in the bathroom, you look at you need to say those things. You need to be able to constantly remind yourself of what the Word of God says about you, not what the old lies have said about you. Well, the Bible says, I'm more than a conqueror through Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. I have healing through Christ. I mean, we have to focus and quote and stand on the Word, not on our old lies, and constantly replacing them. And the enemy throws new ones all the time. And our flesh will fight against it, too. The old man. The renewing of the mind has to take place. Uh, here's the definition of renewing, and I can't even really attempt to pronounce the Greek word. I'm not that kind of a scholar. You wouldn't remember it anyway, right? So we'll just say renewing. We'll remember that. The word suggests a renovation, a restoration, transformation, and a change of heart and life. In Romans 12:2, it indicates a complete change for the better, an adjustment of one's moral and spiritual vision. It comes, my definition came from the passage in Titus 3, 5, where it says that in that verse, it stresses the work of the Holy Spirit in transforming the life. It's nothing we do. It's what he does. He has to do it. We have to allow him to do it. This is what we call grace and the power of God moving on us, leaning into him the full weight of our trust in him to be able to do something I cannot do. I was thinking of this during the week. Uh, I was working in the yard and pulling out weeds. I was putting in a second layer of a sidewalk I built, and and uh, it had a bunch of weeds I needed to get out of the way. And I was grabbing those weeds and yanking on them. And, you know, weeds are nasty. Weeds are like demonic. Aren't they? I mean, they're, weeds, have, weeds are like part of the fall, I'm sure. But, you know, I mean... When everything fell, weeds started growing. And, and they grow faster than the good stuff. And they're, it's just, when we got all those rains, I went out, I have a six-foot fence um, with machine guns on top. No, I'm just anyway, I have a six-foot And I thought, here's my grass struggling, loving it. But this, I got this weed over here as tall as me in like three days. I'm like, man, it's a good thing it was a quick grower because you can grab that in the middle and pull it up by the roots real easy. Well, I'm yanking on these weeds that are pretty well established where I want my sidewalk to be. And all the little shoots are coming off in my hand, but you know that root's still down there. Yeah, wood. Dandelions, right? You grab a dandelion, you pull it, you get everything in your hand, but the root's down there going, <laughs> I'll see you next year. I mean, they're like cursing your face, these things. And I thought, this is, let me draw an illustration. There are roots in our lives of thoughts and lies that have grown in and established themselves. And my ability to self-help, you know, I'm going to help myself get better. I'm going to grab that root and I'm going to pull it out. What do I get? I get a handful of the stuff on the outside. But the root is affixed. How am I ever going to get it out of there? There's this passage, there's three verses, Luke 11, 24, 5, and 6. It says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, He, that spirit, goes through dry places seeking rest. Now, get your imagination on. We're talking about a demonic spirit that was in a person. When it's driven out or shunned, 
it goes and it starts looking for a place of rest, seeking the dry places. It's wandering about, going, where am I going to live? Seeking rest. Finding none, he says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. I, I didn't write it in here, but I have a, in my mind I have a title for these three verses called The New Leaf Syndrome. Turning over that new leaf, you know, uh, January 1 resolves, and I'm going to do better. When's the last time you really were able to do better? I mean, the Bible says you're no good. The Bible says you cannot. The law of God says you fail. Right? Paul said the law was there to show me that I died. Every time the law came up against me, it, it condemned me and I died. So I just come to the place I cannot. This guy sort of does the new leaf thing. I'll just, I'm going to spruce up. I'm, you're out of here. You, you compulsive behavior, you lying thing, you old thing. I'm not going to do you anymore. I'm not housing you anymore. I spruce up my little apartment. There you go, and then January 2nd comes. If you're really lucky, you might make it to the 5th or whenever you make these decisions. And it's out there wandering around looking for someplace else to live. And says, let's go back and check the old apartment. Hey, it's been remodeled, clean, swept. He doesn't just move in, right? Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. The new leaf syndrome. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better. I'm going to pull these old roots myself. And all I get is a handful of exteriors. And the roots there waiting to accommodate seven more. I better get smart enough in the spirit to say, I can't do this. I need help. I need, I need someone, you know, that's somebody bigger than you and I. Yeah? I need somebody bigger. I need somebody stronger. I need a victorious Jesus to come. I need the power of the Holy Spirit. God himself to come and latch onto that root and extract it. And in its place, give me a new truth. You'll never amount to anything. Some of you heard that from your parents. I don't, I don't think you're, you're always going to be like so-and-so. These condemning thoughts, lies. God needs to come and we need to allow him to come and grab a hold of that and extract it. Encounter weekends are built for this. It's not the only time it happens, but when we do an encounter weekend, this is what we're expecting to happen. This is what we come, raise an expectation. If you're going to be part of an encounter, we want to know before we start, a month ahead of when we start, we want to know you're coming. We want to get your name on a list. We want to list all the people of prayer in the church and all the life groups. We want to get your name in front of them and begin to intercede for you in the Spirit. We begin to pray that everything comes together for you and nothing will interrupt your time with God. And that whatever revelation you need and whatever power in the Spirit needs to come and touch you will be there and be available for you. We want to pray for the leaders of the encounter so they're ready and they're not dragging anything in of their own. You know, we want to come into this thing pure and ready. And just let God come and descend on us together as the body of Christ. And then in, during that time, we do teaching and preaching and ministry and prayer. And in those times, we break off chains. We go through activities that will symbolically tell us what we're doing. You know, we write sin lists and things that have always troubled us. And 
we get them ready and we take them to the cross and we nail them there and we burn them. We do something to, to remind ourselves that God has dealt with this sin and I no longer have to carry it. This is the introduction to my message. I just looked at my notes. I'm thinking, my goodness, I am never going to finish. What time are we supposed to be at that barbecue? <laughs> so don't go the self-deliverance results model of the New Leaf Syndrome. Say, I've been, <laughs> I've been to a dozen encounters myself. I go to teach them, but I end up on the floor. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. You know, I think, oh, I'm supposed to be praying for somebody right now, but I'm over in the corner going, Jesus, thank you for loving Tearing these things out of my life. It never ends. So if you're a if you're an encounter alumni, come on back. You know, let's let's go again. Let's experience God together with some of these new ones that are going to be in there. But I will say, you need some help. Just if you're a new believer and you're struggling with things, you need some help. You need some people to come alongside. You need intercession. You need people to pray for you. You need an isolated moment where God can come and talk to you without distraction. We will burn your cell phone as you come in. No, we just collect them. Maybe you'll turn them off. We won't burn your cell phone. I know you wouldn't come if you thought I was going to burn your cell phone. And let's, let us help. Is it possible? Are we all shut down? I, I'm sorry. I was going to throw up the Joel Comiskey group website. Is that possible? It doesn't matter when you get it up there. Uh, although I want to encourage you, this is a shameless plug. I write once a week for the Joel Comiskey group blog. And it's read by, I think we just found out some. I mean, signed up for the blog. We have about 1,500 people that read it every week. But we just found out that it's on the front page of a, of a website in Brazil, of the church in Brazil, that's read by 15,000 people. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. I'm totally intimidated. And uh, this is a, a, the rebuilt website here. Another shameless plug. Una built this. There's Joel. Joel's in London this weekend, ministry. And I'm waiting for the most handsome picture to go by. You may have already seen it. It's, it's coming. I feel it. I feel I'm waiting for it. Don't change me now. Come on. Don't, come on. Ed, are you skipping it? No, I'm sorry. There's just so many pages. Oh, there he is. There, the most handsome one in the lot, tell you. Come on, definitely the best looking one, don't you think? I can't believe my picture's next to a guy like Mario Vega, pastor of the second largest church in the world. And I can call him my friend in Spanish. Anyway, uh, I want to read to you the blog I wrote for next week. And, and what I'd like to encourage you to do, can we hit, yeah, there's a, that's the newsletter. But the blog is... Uh, yeah, little tab, or you can you can uh, click through to the blog page, or you can probably click on us as we go by. And there's a place where you can just drop your email in there, and the blog will be put in your inbox every day, four days a week, Monday through, or yeah, Monday through Friday, five days a week. This is what I wrote for next week, because we're writing on the topic of Oikos this this month. Oikos is that group or circle of people around you, constantly. Uh, I'd like to qualify it by saying it's the people that you have influence with 
or connection with on about a weekly or bi-weekly basis. And within 7 to 14 days, you're touching these people. They, they respect you. You have some measure of influence with them. They're not coming and going out of your life like visitors. They're regulars. They're your family. They're people you work with. Uh, if you look at Acts chapter 10, which I don't encourage you to turn to that right now, but it's the story of Cornelius' house where Peter comes to preach at Cornelius' house. <clears throat> and, and it says that he gathers his family and friends. He, that's an oikos. And while Peter's preaching and telling them the truth about Jesus, the Holy Spirit descends. They all get filled with the Holy Ghost. And the whole family comes into relationship with God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit all right there. The servants are there. The workers of the field are there. The family members are there. It's an oikos circle. And, and they're people that you have some amount of influence with. If you said something to them, they would listen to you. And so when we're talking about oikos, this is what I wrote. For those reading the blog while living in relational countries where an understanding of oikos pre-exists gathering in cell groups, I congratulate you in the relative ease you experience in adopting the cell lifestyle. And I admonish you to continue expanding your circle of friends beyond your natural family. I'm aware of a small church near my home where four generations of one family attend. This one family numbers over 50 persons, while the entire entire church has only 100 attending its weekend service. When this family goes on vacation, which they do, and they often go together, when they go on vacation, fully one half of the church is gone. This should never be the case for your congregation. Please reach outside your family to the world around you with the great good news of Jesus and his love. For those of us living, and this is to us, for those of us living in fiercely independent individualistic populations, I wish to exhort the leaders of cell groups to think deeply about the true nature of oikos relationships. Communities of sharing, the Bible says koinonia, like those in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, They do not occur in our populations without constant nurturing and biblical attitudes of mutual commitment to Christ and one another. When an individual's needs are presented in the weekly cell meeting, the rest of the cell family must learn to love and care for them. Our culture is more inclined to say, we care, only to depart the weekly meeting and become so quickly, almost immediately, overwhelmed by our own busy schedule that we forget the person and their need. You as a leader have an incredible opportunity to instruct and equip believers to overcome the cultural dictates of self-care and learn to live in the selfless style of Jesus our Lord. Somebody say, that guy doesn't write so bad. Just don't say that guy doesn't write so good. Acts chapter 16 if you want to sign up for the blog, you can get, you know, Joel and Mario Vega and myself and visiting bloggers. And it's all about cell church. It's all about what God's doing in, in the world through more than small group ministry, but through cell ministry. And I know I mentioned this before, but on March the 2nd next year, we're going to do a one-day conference here in Reseda. It's close enough to get to in one day and get down there and back on a Saturday with Joel and Mario. So if you want to be thinking about coming, you can. We're going to host that in a cell church in Reseda that has 600 cell groups. And they're mostly Hispanic, mostly Latino. So we're going to do the whole day in Spanish with simultaneous translation. 
Didn't want to lose you there. Acts chapter 16, verses 11 to 40, talk about the birth of the church in Philippi. I'm not going to read the whole section. That's up to you to do that. But it says, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. And the next day came to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. We were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. That little history for you. The reason they're out at the riverside. You know, we could sing, down by the riverside. Um, There was no Jewish temple. You had to have ten Jewish men to form a Jewish temple or synagogue. There evidently was not one because Paul's practice was to go to the synagogue and preach the gospel. So there wasn't one. So you're looking for the spiritual group in the community, the colony of Philippi. Where were they? It was the ladies. They were out praying. You ladies are like that. I love it. Guys, we just want to get up and go do something. Ladies say, let's pray first. We go, oh, come on, do we have to do that? And the guys are disappointed almost because we want to function, we want to go. But they're out praying by the riverside. And so that's where Paul gravitates. That's where the spirituality of the community is. That's where he wants to preach the truth of Jesus. And so he does. And it says, we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Verse 14, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Prayer meeting down by the riverside. Revelation opens Lydia's heart. And then that revelation penetrates her oikos. So the Bible says, when she and her household were baptized, you only baptize believers. They didn't just say, well, line up, kids. We're all getting baptized. I don't care what you believe. Get in the water. That's not how it works. No, they're over there talking about this right next door because when people are baptized, we only baptize believers in Christ. But this is how it worked in the New Testament. It was that the gospel was preached and it penetrated an oikos. Whole households came to Christ. And this is where I put here, this is the beginning of Paul's oikos is right here. He's got lots of friends, but there's an interesting, uh, powerful relationship that he develops with the church of Philippi. She persuades them to stay. And then as we continue reading, you know, uh, there's a little more power ministry going on. That's better than Luke chapter 11, by the way, down here. There's a lady that's following them saying, these men are the servants of God. These men are the servants of God. Paul turns around and casts a demon out of her, right? Come out of her. And the demon comes out and she is set free. Now there's a, There's an encounter weekend moment right there. That's a power encounter. The power of Jesus over the power of the devil. And the devil is driven out. The demon is driven out of her life. And the people who are using this girl to make money realize their money is gone. Now they can't use this demonic influence in her life to make money off of her. And so they stir up a big deal. And Paul and Silas end up in jail. So what do Paul and Silas do? Well, you have it in your Bible too. Around verse 25, they're singing and worshiping God at midnight. In the chains. After they've been beaten, their backs are bloody. They're still bleeding. They're scarring over. And they're, they're saying, let's worship Jesus. And another power encounter happens. That power encounter opens every cell door, shakes the whole place through an earthquake. All the cells are open. Everybody's set free. 
and the rushing to the end of the story because the Philippian jailer, you know, calls for a light and he's, he says, what, men, what, do I, what do we need to do? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved, and your household, and your oikos. So he takes them home. He, he takes care of their wounds. They speak the word of the Lord to him in verse 32, and to all who were in his house. And he took, he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized, just like Lydia's oikos. Now, there's a second Oikos circle of influence and family that's, been, that's come to the Lord in Philippi. They all get baptized. Verse 34 says, When he brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Let me read some history to you quickly. Acts 16, 12-40 records the founding of the Philippian church. Paul established the church during his second missionary journey around A.D. 51. From its inception, the church displayed a strong missionary zeal and was consistent in its support of Paul's ministry, which if you look at, we're going to go to the book of Philippians, and in there he, he says, you're the only church that helped take care of me from the beginning. You, you supported me financially from the very beginning. You, you worked with me in my missionary efforts. Uh, it's Paul is the historians say that Paul enjoyed a closer friendship with the Philippians than with any other church. He most likely wrote his letter to the Philippians during his first Roman imprisonment, AD 61, to thank them for their contribution that he had received from them. He also warmly commends Epaphroditus, who had brought the gift from Philippi, and Paul was now sending back to them. His primary reason for writing the letter was to acknowledge the gifts sent by the Philippians. Paul also appealed for a spirit of unity and steadfastness among them. In addition, he warned them against dangerous heresies that were threatening them, probably Judaism and Gnosticism. In many respects, this is the most beautiful of Paul's letters, full of tenderness, warmth, affection. His style is spontaneous, personal, and informal, presenting us with an intimate diary of Paul's own spiritual experiences. I'm hoping you feel the flavor there of his friendship because I'm talking about his oikos. These are people that he led to Christ. These are people that he baptized into Jesus. These are people he shared meals with, and he saw the church church birthed in oikos in what I like to call Paul and Silas the two-man cell meeting. You'll work on that for a bit. And when you look at how he opens his letter to the Philippians, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a student of the Scriptures and you're thinking, I don't mean to intimate that you're not, you would ask, what's missing in his greeting? Most of the other letters he writes, Paul, an apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ, Right? He, he, he pens down his authority to be penning the letter to them. I'm an apostle. Listen up. The Philippians, he doesn't need to say, hey, I'm an apostle. He's their friend. They're in his oikos. They're in relationship together. And the tone of his letter becomes personal and meaningful. And he shares his heart. And he encourages and exhorts them like a friend. It's a beautiful slant that doesn't exist in some of the other letters that he wrote. 
or he needed to declare, I'm an apostle. And these are my these are, these are my instructions from the Holy Spirit to use the church. Philippi says, you're my friends. We live life together. We share together. We've been at it from the beginning together. We all know each other. You sent me Epaphroditus. You know, Epaphroditus got sick when he was visiting Paul, bringing this gift of support. And it's, Paul said he almost died. He was longing to go back to his church, to his family, to his oikos, to the body of Christ in Philippi. But he got sick and he almost died. Paul says, oh, Epaphroditus is such a good friend. I'm sending him back to you. Receive him as he comes back to you because he loves you so much. We're hearing relationship. Chapter 2, he starts in Philippians saying, Therefore, if... This is the New King James. I'm going to shake this up just a little bit in the next couple of minutes. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And I'll stop there, even though we need the next few verses. There's a, a, a strong translation that comes from Kenneth Wiest who's a Greek scholar. He rewrites these things the way it should be written by, in his opinion, by the way the structure of the sentences come in the original language. He writes it this way. In view of the fact that there is certain ground of appeal in Christ which exhorts us, and since there is a certain tender persuasion that comes from divine love, in view of the fact that there is a certain joint participation with the Spirit in a common interest and activity, since there are certain tender-heartednesses and compassionate yearnings and, and actions, fill full my joy by thinking the same thing, having the same love, being in heart agreement, thinking one thing, not being divided. Doing nothing impelled by a spirit of factiousness, nothing impelled by empty pride, but in lowliness of mind consider one another as excelling themselves. This estimation resting not upon feelings or sentiment, but upon a due consideration of facts. Not consulting each one his own interests only, but also each one the interests of others. This mind, let it be constantly in you and having you, this mind that was also in Christ. Let it own you. Let it lead you. Let it guide you. There's an appeal that he makes to his friends. Dwell together in unity. Live life together. Lower yourself. Let others be esteemed more highly than you. Don't struggle for command and top dog stuff. But look for how to serve one another. Read the passages of Jesus in John chapter 10, washing the disciples' feet and saying, if you call me Lord and Master and you're right, and today I've washed your feet, happy you will be if you do what I've shown you to do. 
serve one another, love one another, minister to one another, put yourself in second place constantly. See, we live in a, as I wrote in the blog, a fiercely independent and individualistic culture where it's get what you can, step on the other guy, get up as fast as you can, succeed, use who you need to use to get up there, you know, take care of yourself first so that you can take care of others later if you ever get around to it. You know, the golden rule is uh, not do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's do unto others and split. Or it's whoever's got the gold rules. I mean, it's all been changed by our culture. So we don't have a lot of influence from outside of the Word of God that's going to help us. It's, it conflicts us. I get conflicted when I drive by somebody who looks stranded on the side of the road. Why? Because the story of the Good Samaritan runs into my mind. And I'm, well, who's, who's the, we even have Good Samaritan laws. We have Good Samaritan companies. Did you know that? In business, in corporations, there's Good Samaritan companies. And there are Golden Rule companies. There are people who have adopt, adopted as, as corporations the principles of Scripture to organize their companies by. We don't hear about them very much. Why? Because they're quietly doing good. Kind of like what Pastor Rob said. Introduce the name of Jesus and everybody will reject you. We want everything Jesus has to offer without Jesus. Our culture leads us astray. So we must war. Pull down strongholds. We must adopt this oikos kind of living because it's biblical. I don't know that we'll all enter a commune soon and all live together and grow vegetables and things. I'm not looking for that. But even our, even our town has a community garden now. I see, you know, there's, we strive toward it. We look for it. We want it. But then, as Pastor Rob said, we introduce how it comes through the person of Jesus and we, the world rejects the idea. But you and I are not allowed to reject the idea. We've embraced the Christ. We've embraced his life. And now Paul says to his friends in his oikos, you guys really need to work at this unity part. You need to think one thought. You need to have one mind. You need to love one another, exalt the other person. Would you like to live in this environment? I would like to live in the environment where Matthew always puts me first. And then I'm trying to outdo him by putting him first. Acknowledging the Jesus in him. No, how can I bless you? He says, no, Pastor, how can I bless you? No, no, I would never get anything done. The New Living Translation, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others also. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'll read one more quote from the book, Hope When You're Hurting. It's about how to come through and be healed, how to come through the encounter with God, how to get the help of others that you need in order to become whole, how to overcome the traumatic things that have happened in your life and let Jesus give you a new truth. And there's this indictment that he puts in. He says, local churches have too often become places where people pursuing their own agendas gather to receive encouragement on their individual journey. When the path gets bumpy, the church is expected to smooth out the bumps or refer individuals to experts who can. The focus is on problems and how to solve them on a comfortable life with some meaning thrown in. I don't want to go to that church. I really don't. I want to experience life together in this kingdom. I want you to know I've got problems and I want to know what your problems are. When I get together with my life group, I don't want to hide. And say, oh, no, everything's fine. When my world is crumbling, I want to be able to look across the room after we've worshipped God together and say, I really need some help. I really need, I mean, today I'm the needy one. Next week, maybe not. Today I'm the needy one. And I want the people in my oikos to look at me with such love and compassion, like-mindedness and humility, to say, how can we help? What can we do? I don't want them just to pave the way for smoothing out the bumps. If I'm living wrong, I want them to confront. I want them to hold me accountable. I want them to help me to become a mature person in Christ. I want to live like the Bible says to live. I don't want to live like the world says I should live. I'm going to come into a life group and just take, 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 and run away, looking how I can make my life better. I want to go there and live in a sacrificial way that says, I'm here to help you. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to wash your feet. I'm here to be like Christ to you in your time of need. And I've got a whole other message that's in this message that I never got to. I even have copies to hand out to you. But we're not going to get that far. We can't because there's a rioting kid zone waiting. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Part two, someday. I want to be part of the body of Christ that's sharing life, not afraid. What the world says, don't ever, don't ever be vulnerable to somebody because they'll just eat you up, spit you out, and walk all over the top of you and spread the news. And that we live in that kind of fear. Some of us have worked in those environments where we could not be vulnerable. But when I enter into my oikos, my family, my friends, those people are my immediate circle of caring influence, I should be able to open my heart and not have somebody step on it. Really. Amen? That's what the Bible says. And, and right, you say good luck. And truly, it's a rare thing to find. It really is. It's, it's an idealistic pointing. But don't we always point at the ideals of the Bible and say, this is, let's go here? 
This is where life happens. I want life. Father, you have set before us, even as you said to those in the valley, I set before you today life and blessing and curse and death. And Lord, we want to choose life. I pray that you would help us to choose life. Help us to become those people, the body of Christ, that dwells together in unity. Father, I pray that you would lead us into repentance for living independently, for putting ourselves on the throne of our own hearts, saying I'm going to live my way and then add God on. Lord, this is idolatry. And we confess to you that we have lived in idolatrous moments. We're not idolaters. God, it's not our bent. You live in us. You give us your life. You draw us to yourself. You want us to succeed in being your body. I pray that you would take these words today and take your word especially, a living and true word, and graft it into our hearts. Let it renew our minds. Give us a new focus, a renewed focus, or a continued focus, depending on where we are in life, Lord. A new one, a renewed one, or a continuing focus that says others are more important than me. I esteem them higher. I will serve in the body of Christ. I will lead and take my part in doing what brings life to others. Form us into oikos relationships, Lord. For those who have no family, you say you set the solitary into families. Well, for those of us that have big families, we pray that you'll flood through our oikos relationships as you did in the New Testament and bring every one of them to Christ. Help us to be influencers in our circles. Ask this in Jesus' name, Lord, that you will take this and move it over and over and over in our hearts. This week, as we gather in life groups, let us discuss it, pray for one another, minister to one another, love one another, forgive one another as we need to. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for your time. You're a blessing.